0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number three, the book of Romans, chapter one, continued. The subject matter of the book of Romans necessarily lends itself to a lot of interpretation and application and preaching. And we're not going to be shying away from any of it, so here we go. Last week we dealt with the opening words of Romans chapter 1 because how one interprets it sets Paul's tone for the entire letter. The first six verses behave as a sort of preamble. And let us remember that while in Christendom the rather lofty term epistles is used of the books that Paul wrote, in common speech each of those books is but a letter just a letter that was written and sent to a, a person or maybe a specific congregation and a specific city and each letter is meant to address certain issues that were pertinent to that group or that person there is no universal agreement among Bible scholars on how many New Testament books were actually even written by Paul The number is as few as 8, varies all the way up to 13. However, Paul is universally agreed to as the author of the book of Romans. So this letter is to believers now, as the name implies, in the city of Rome. Not Rome in the sense of the entire Roman Empire. So not Romans in the sense of all the citizens of the Roman Empire. We're talking to the city of Rome and congregations there. Now Paul's preamble contains some important information that applies to our faith. This information has been historically misconstrued and we dealt with that in depth in our previous lesson. Now as a reminder of what we talked about there were two terms or phrases that together defined the opening tone of this letter to the Romans. And those terms were slave of Messiah Yeshua and apostle. And unlike what it might seem at first glance, the phrase slave of Messiah Yeshua is not meant to indicate exceptional humility or even self-effacing. Rather, in Hebrew thought pattern, those words indicate a high honor, a position of high status. Second of all, the term apostle, which the word apostle is an English word, comes from the Greek word apostolos. And apostolos more or less indicates someone who has been sent with instructions to carry out an assignment. In Roman society, this word apostolos was used in the realm of the military and in commercial shipping. However, its use misses the mark on the concept that the Jewish Paul was trying to get across in his letter. The term Paul, no doubt, would have preferred to use was shaliach, a Hebrew word. However, there is no direct equivalent to shaliach in Greek. So he chose the the best approximation that the Greek language would offer him, which was apostolos. Now, shaliach carries more weight, carries more authority than apostolos. A shaliach is an agent. It's an agent who carries all the power and authority of his master. A shaliach has a great deal of personal choice and autonomy. Acknowledging, of course, that whatever he does, he does on behalf of or in the name of his master. Now, in Christian thinking, an apostle is more or less an authoritative messenger. But the original 12 apostles, and Paul is the 13th apostle, were far more than mere messengers. This is why they were able to do miracles and it's why the apostles expected believers to obey them. Now Paul begins his letter by telling the believers of the congregations in Rome that they were obligated to consider him as their ultimate earthly authority. He says this so on the grounds this is so on the grounds that because Yeshua personally appointed Paul as his shaliach to the Gentiles and since Yeshua also called or elected those Gentiles in Rome to faith as believers then it follows that regardless that it was not Paul who established these believing congregations in Rome nonetheless they should subject themselves to his authority bottom line Paul wasn't being humble Rather, he was being insistent, authoritative. He had every reason to believe that he was right in being so. Well, let's continue by starting at verse 7 of chapter 1. And we'll reread most of the chapter. Verse 7 of chapter 1 of the book of Romans. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we're on page 1402. Verse 7, 2, all those in Rome whom God loves, who've been called, who have been set apart for Him, grace to you, shalom, from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua the Messiah. First, I thank my God through Yeshua the Messiah for all of you, because the report of your trust is spreading throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit by spreading the good news about His Son, is my witness that I regularly remember you in my prayers. I always pray that somehow, now or in the future, I might, by God's will, succeed in coming to visit you. For I long to see you, so that I might share with you some spiritual gift that can make you stronger, to put it another way, so that by my being with you, we might, through the faith we share, and encourage one another. Now brothers, I want you to know that although I have been prevented from visiting you until now, I have often planned to do so in order that I might have some fruit among you, just as I have among the other Gentiles. I owe a debt to both civilized Greeks and uncivilized people, to both the educated and the ignorant, and therefore I am eager to proclaim the good news also to you who live in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the good news since it is God's powerful means of bringing salvation to everyone who keeps on trusting, to the Jew especially, but equally to the Gentile. For in it is revealed how God makes people righteous in his sight, and from beginning to end it is through trust. As the Tanaq puts it, but the person who is righteous will live his life by trust. What is revealed is God's anger from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who in their wickedness keep suppressing the truth. Because what is known about God is plain to them, since God's made it plain to them. For ever since the creation of the universe, His invisible qualities, both His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly seen, because they can be understood from what He's made. Therefore they have no excuse... Because although they know who God is, they do not glorify Him as God or thank Him. On the contrary, they become futile in their thinking. And their undiscerning hearts have become dark and claiming to be wise, they've become fools. In fact, they have exchanged the glory of the mortal God for mere images. Like a mortal human being or like birds or animals or reptiles. This is why God has given them up to the vileness of their hearts' lusts, to the shameful misuse of each other's bodies. They have exchanged the truth of God for falsehood by worshipping and serving created things rather than the Creator. Praised be He forever. Amen. This is why God has given them up to degrading passions. So that their women exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural, and likewise the men. Giving up natural relations with the opposite sex, they burn with passion for one another. Men committing shameful acts with other men, and receiving in their own persons the penalty appropriate to their perversion. In other words, since they have not considered God worth knowing, God's given them up to worthless ways of thinking, so that they do improper things. They are filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, vice, stuffed with jealousy, murder, quarreling, dishonesty, ill will. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God. They are insolent, arrogant, boastful. They plan evil schemes. They disobey their parents. They're brainless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know well enough God's righteous decree that people who do such things deserve to die, yet not only do they keep doing them, they applaud others who do the same. The words of verse 7 are basically the way Paul starts most of his letters. It's a customary greeting it states to whom the letter is intended and although without doubt this letter addresses mostly the Gentile believers of Rome. It also includes the Jewish believers. So when Paul says, to all in Rome who God loves, who have been called by Yeshua and set apart for Him, it's referring to all believers in the city of Rome, Jew and Gentile. Now notice something important this is at the end of verse 7. Don't put those Bibles away. Paul refers separately to to God the Father, and to Yeshua the Messiah. Paul sees the Father and Yeshua as two distinct entities, or perhaps as two identifiable parts of a whole. Thus, for Christians who believe that essentially the essence of the Father has been rolled into the essence of the Son, Christ, and thus the Father has either retreated from the scene now or is just no longer relevant that is not how Paul sees it some in Christianity make this claim of irrelevance of the Father in modern times because of Yeshua's statement in John 14 that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father they're wrong Rather, it's just that, uh, it is just that just as Paul is an agent of Yeshua, but he's still subordinate to him, so we find Christ pronounce that while he has been given all authority on earth and in heaven, he is still effectively an agent of God, and thus subordinate to his Father. I don't want to get hung up here on a controversial theological issue of the substance and the nature of God. However, just know that Paul's theology doesn't allow for the Father and the Son to be the same person, or for one to have abdicated his position to the other. Both exist, both are relevant, both have their own attributes and functions. They are echad, they are one. But there is a definite hierarchy with the Father at the top. Now one other important item. The complete Jewish Bible does not do a good job with verse 7 because it leaves out an important word. The word is hagios in Greek. Now typically hagios is translated into English as saints. So here is this verse in the much more literal King James Version. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved of God and saints are essentially synonymous. And they are Old Testament terms used of God's chosen people, the Hebrews. So Paul is extending the use of those terms now to believers, Jew and Gentile. Now the reason I point this out is that it is often erroneously claimed in Christianity that saints is a more or less new and an exclusive term coined for New Testament believers in Christ. Now in verse 8, thanksgiving is Paul's priority as it ought to be for all of us in our prayers what is Paul thanking God for? it's for the living reality of the trust exhibited by some Jews and Gentiles in Rome to accept Yeshua as Messiah but what ought to draw our attention is where Paul says this I think my God how? I thank my God through Messiah Yeshua. Interesting phrase. This word through, dia, in Greek, is there in all extant Greek manuscripts of the book of Romans. And I am yet to find an English translation that leaves it out. I'm sure Paul didn't mean to create a heated doctrinal argument By inserting the word through, but he did. If he means what he said, I have no reason to believe otherwise, then he envisions Christ as a sort of intermediary between God and man. Now, while some Jews today claim that such a concept as there being a heavenly intermediary is a showstopper for them, in fact, in non-biblical but authoritative Jewish writings like Enoch and Tobit and a few other ancient Jewish sources Second Temple Judaism believed that archangels were intermediaries between man and God. And perhaps if intermediary isn't the perfect English word to use then maybe intercessor helps to define a little better what it means. We could spend significant time on this theological issue, but I don't want to get parked here. What is unambiguous as it appears in all New Testament versions is that Paul is rendering thanksgiving not to Yeshua, but to the Father through Yeshua with Yeshua providing the understood mediating role that many Jews in the second temple era just took for granted. So the issue that Judaism would have had with Paul is not the concept of there being an intermediary, but rather who or what fulfilled that role. And Paul says it is Jesus Christ who is the intermediary. At least he is from now on. And as an application then, here's a good one. To whom do we direct our prayers? The Father or the Son? Are we to pray to Yeshua? Or are we to pray to the Father? Or does it make any difference at all? Yeshua knew with His advent that this was already an issue among His disciples. So rather than leave them hanging, He told them and He told us exactly how we should pray. Now I'll use the King James Version because it is by far the most familiar to Christians. In Matthew 6, 9-13 we read this, After this manner, therefore pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done as on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen Now, so just as Yeshua instructed us in the previous chapter of Matthew Matthew chapter 5 He did not abolish the law. Here in Matthew 6, he instructs us to pray to who? The Father. Pretty definitive. So it is as Paul said, we pray to and we deal with the Father, but we do it through the agency of Yeshua. How that all happens and is processed in the heavenlies, I don't know. But the protocol and what our mindset about it is to be is clear. The Father remains not only relevant but supreme. Nothing has changed. And why would it? The Father has always had a son since eternity past. It is only that at a point in temporal history, his son, Yeshua, became flesh and appeared on earth. Paul tells the believers in the city of Rome that not only is he aware of them but that they are important to him such that he prays for them. Now remembering that Paul is a Pharisee then when he says that he regularly remembers them in his prayers what he's referring to is the standard three times per day prayers that most pious Jews the Pharisees, especially, followed as a tradition. Now I'm going to repeat what I'm about to tell you at regular intervals because this is the Rosetta Stone for what we're studying. Paul thinks like a Jew, he behaves like a Jew because he's a Jew. Mm-hmm. When we read his writings, we need to see them from his Jewish viewpoint. Thus, when he writes his letters, his epistles, he unconsciously does so from a Jewish perspective. Why? Because he's not a Gentile. Even though he has some familiarity with Gentiles. More as he has plainly stated... Out of his own mouth, he is a Hebrew of Hebrews and a Pharisee of Pharisees. He is among the most pious and the most strict of Jews. He said that statement many years after becoming a believer and an apostle. His zealous and highly educated Jewishness is the underlying context atop which he has layered the meaning and impact of the arrival of the Messiah. It is the context upon which he even understands what a Messiah is, what a Messiah does, how people are to relate to the Messiah. Paul's Pharisee training under Gamaliel is also his underlying context upon which he builds an understanding of who Messiah is in relation to God. And Paul believes that Yeshua as the Messiah is the Son of God who sits at the Father's right hand. Where did he get this from? The prophet Daniel. This is not the Tom Bradford perspective. It's what Paul says. And very recently, this is also the so called new perspective on Paul that's been adopted by many eminent Bible scholars, such as E.P. Sandler's, Douglas Moo, and, and James D.G. Dunn. Now, this isn't going to be the last time I, I say these things to you, because I know firsthand how difficult it can be to let go of certain Christian doctrines we've been taught most of our lives in exchange for scriptural truth. We unconsciously read the Bible through the lens of Gentile Western Christianity as formed and defined by our early church fathers. They were right about much of it, but wrong about some critical areas that their anti-Jewish bias blinded them to. And it's fallen to us in this present generation to try to right these wrongs so that we can see God for who He really is, His plan of redemption for what it really is, His Jewish people for who they are to Him and where we as His followers, where we fit into all that. Why is this revelation happening now in our day? I think it's a sure sign that Messiah is getting ready for his return and the Holy Spirit is preparing us. I do. I can't think of any other reason. At the end of verse 10, Paul expresses his desire to come to Rome, to visit this congregation he's writing to. He indeed will in about four years, go to Rome. It's going to be in chains. And there's there's no evidence that he ever had contact with those to whom he was writing this letter. He follows this up by explaining why he's so eager to come to Rome. He wants to impart some spiritual gift that may encourage them and strengthen them. Now I've read many comments about exactly what Paul has in mind here but I think what he said is just a general comment that comes from a Jewish mindset of his day and that Paul fully expects that no matter which congregation he visits he will, through God's grace, impart a spiritual gift at God's direction because he is, after all, Yeshua's apostle to the Gentiles. Now this concept of spiritual gifts, I'm sure every one of you have taken a class on spiritual gifts, done your spiritual gift checklist, the whole nine yards. But this concept of spiritual gifts is not a New Testament concept. The Essen community at Qumran also believed in spiritual gifts and they wrote about it. When I compare what I read in the Dead Sea Scrolls with certain words and terms used by both Yeshua and Paul, it's clear there was close contact between them. Yeshua and Paul knew the essence and spent time with them. Now I'm in no way saying that Paul or Yeshua were essence. At the same time, Essen theology is very close to New Testament theology and clearly Yeshua and Paul were familiar with it. Listen to this just very short excerpt from one of the Dead Sea Scrolls it's called 1QS and these are the ways of these spirits in the world it is the spirit of truth to enlighten the heart of man and to level him in the ways of true righteousness and it belongs to the spirit of humility and forbearance of abundant mercy and eternal goodness and also mighty wisdom with faith in all the works of God and trust in his abundant grace it's the spirit of knowledge and every design and zeal for just ordinances such are the counsels of the spirit to the sons of truth in the world the fountain of righteousness the reservoir of power the dwelling place of glory but God has given them an everlasting position to those whom he has chosen He has granted them a share and a lot of the saints. Now to our ears, that sounds like it could have come straight out of the New Testament. It is full of truths and principles and terms that for centuries have been said to exist only in the New Testament. But the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls has changed all that. So Paul had something rather culturally familiar in mind when he spoke about imparting spiritual gifts to believers in Rome. This was not a whole new thought. And it would have fallen along the lines of what I just read to you as it was written in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now interestingly, in verse 12, we find Paul... Backtracking a little bit on what he just said. Rather than def- uh, defining the spiritual gifts as something rather ethereal that he'll bestow upon them, he now says what he meant to say was that there would be mutual encouragement from what they give to each other. Now there's been a number of theories as to what Paul was backtracking from. The one that makes the most sense to me is that he realized that Gentiles would have no understanding of what he means by spiritual gifts. Such a thing was only known within Jewish society. So he sort of redefines his term, spiritual gifts, as meaning a gift of mutual encouragement that believers ought to give one another. And then Paul proceeds to explain why he's never shown up in Rome. He says that he has wanted to, he's wanted to come for some time, but circumstances have conspired to prevent it. Now, anyone with Paul's aspirations would, of course, want to establish a congregation in the capital of the known world, Rome. But because unforeseen conditions arose to prevent Paul from going other evangelists went and they established the believing congregations of Rome. This meant that they would also have planted their doctrines and their understanding of Yeshua into their congregations. Paul wanted in. As he says he was hoping to come and have some fruit in their congregation just as he has fruit in so many other congregations where Gentiles are a part. Translation I'd like to have a role in your congregation so that my efforts in teaching would directly produce some good and righteous outcomes. He wants to be involved. Let's never forget That as an inspired man, as inspired a man of God as Paul was, he was just a man. Paul felt much ownership for the Gentile congregations that had been established. He was used to selecting the leadership. He was used to laying down the rules and regulations. It was his doctrinal viewpoints that he expected to be adopted. The truth is, what little reward on earth that he would ever get for his hard work and dedication was that he would see some good fruit come from it all. He didn't want Rome to be the lone exception. Especially when, outside of Jerusalem, Rome was the most important and influential place on earth at this time. Well, in verse 14, Paul continues his explanation. By essentially saying, sorry, but I've just been very busy. And because he had begun his letter by describing himself in the lofty term, slave of Messiah Yeshua, he continues this thought by saying that he has an obligation to Yeshua to go to both civilized Greeks and uncivilized barbarians. Now, in our complete Jewish Bible, where it says uncivilized people, that's incorrect. The Greek says barbarians. Barbarians were first and foremost simply people who didn't speak Greek. Non-Greek speakers were considered less civilized according to the worldview of the Roman Empire. Together, Greeks and barbarians constituted the Gentiles of the world. Paul then adds that he is also to bring the gospel to both the educated and the uneducated. So every Gentile, regardless of language or intelligence or status, he says is entitled to hear the gospel and he intends to see to it that that happens. And he concludes that thought by saying that therefore he is also eager to proclaim the good news to the citizens of Rome. In other words, they certainly fall within the definition of people that he is obligated to evangelize. Well, clearly, verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1 are the powerful theme of the entire letter. The principal emphasis is on the saving power of the gospel. But the why of it is also briefly explained. In other words, okay, the gospel saves. Why? Why is the gospel able to save? And the answer is, according to Paul, the gospel manifests God's righteousness. Now, these verses and what follows are so dense with theological principles that are the heart and soul of our faith that we're going to take as much time as needed to to flesh them out. Paul begins with this very strange statement, if you think about it, that he's not ashamed of the gospel. What does that mean? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Very likely, it's a Jewish expression. First of all, understand there is a difference between being shamed and being ashamed. It's not the same thing. Being shamed is a social condition. Middle Eastern societies were shame and honor societies. That is, perhaps the supreme societal goal of all people was to be living in a state of honor. The worst thing that could happen was to be shamed and thus have the societal status of shame assigned to you. Shame was so serious of a societal status that there was literally no limit on how far one might go to regain their honor and it often involves killing the person who brought shame upon you Ash- ashamed far from being a social status is a psychological condition it involves guilt it involves the deepest sense of regret it means feeling very badly about yourself or having done something or somehow being associated with something which society says is socially unacceptable being ashamed does not change your societal status and one cannot do something to solve being ashamed since indeed it is a state of mind and it's not a state of your actual status among your community In a shame and honor society being in a state of shame means that people will shun you. You have lost your place in the community. So Paul is not talking about being ashamed of the gospel in the sense of shame and honor. It has nothing to do with societal status. We know that much. Many language experts believe that this must have been a well-known expression in Paul's day, even if it's been lost to history because one would have to ask why anyone might feel a sense of deep regret or deep guilt to be ashamed over the gospel message. It doesn't fit. Rather, very likely, it is a negative way of communicating that one has the fullest confidence in the gospel or perhaps Only to confess or declare the gospel. In other words, it's not uncommon in English to use the negative to express something positive. For instance, I'm not not unimpressed means I'm impressed. I'm not disappointed means I'm pleased. So I maintain that Paul was using a negative, I'm not ashamed, to express a positive. I have confidence in the gospel. It's merely a figure of speech or was a manner of speaking in his day. Now the next clause in verse 16 is not expressed well at all in the complete Jewish Bible. Take a look at it. Verse 16. A much more literal translation of it is, For it is the power of God to everyone who believes. Now I hear the words, but what does that mean? It's the power of God to everyone who believes. See, to Paul, and boy this is a theological principle to put in your mind and hang on to. To Paul, the power of God is a mysterious but very real force. It is a force that has the ability to bring about a strong transforming effect on human beings. This is not the only place that he uses the term the power of God, or God's power, or power in relation to the Godhead. In 1 Corinthians 1 he says, For the message about the execution stake, about the cross, is nonsense to those in the process of being destroyed. But to us in the process of being saved, it's the power of God. In 1 Corinthians 2 3 through 5, Also, I myself was with you as somebody weak and nervous and shaking all over from fear. And neither the delivery nor the content of my message relied on compelling words of wisdom, but rather on a demonstration of the power of the Spirit, so that your trust might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Second Corinthians 6 Six through seven. We commend ourselves by our purity, knowledge, patience, and kindness, by the Ruach Hakodesh, the Holy Spirit, by genuineness of love and truthfulness of speech, and by God's power. Paul uses this power of God, or God's power concept, in several more places as well. Even more this same force, the same actual force, this power of God. Is a continuing d- divine force that sustains the new and better life that it also creates. So the saving nature of the gospel is a transformative force, literal force, that only God wields. But the main point is, this transforming force is from God the Father. One can trust in Christ for salvation, but the actual force that brings about salvation is the Father's. The idea that God's word has actual power, actual force, To transform and save is an Old Testament idea. And it's one of the most most obvious references to it. And there's several. Has to be in Psalm 107. There we find this in verses 19, 19 through 20. In their troubles, they cried to Adonai, and he rescued them from their distress. He sent his word, and he healed them, and he delivered them from destructions. There is a change, however, in Paul's idea, or concept, of salvation as it refers to Christ and to his believers. In the Old Testament, saving or delivering was about being rescued from some actual situation. There was danger of some kind, but the person was rescued from that danger. There was a probability of death. That person was rescued from that deadly circumstance. In the context of the gospel, salvation is a spiritual matter. In fact, its immediate effects may be minimal from an earthly perspective. One can be in a dire situation and receive salvation in the forgiveness of sins, but yet one's physical life might not be delivered. In fact, Paul tends to see the primary importance of salvation as a delivery, hear me, as a delivery from a future judgment of God that occurs in the end times. So while one can be saved immediately, its most important effect, being spared from eternal spiritual death, that doesn't come till later. There's another interesting and I think nearly lost aspect of salvation that regards the person who's being saved. Now while it is a long-held Christian doctrine that trust in Yeshua as Savior is the requirement to obtain salvation, that's not exactly what Paul says. Here, the complete Jewish Bible gets it correct as opposed to most other English translations translations that say salvation to everyone who believes. Keep that in your mind. Trans uh, salvation to everyone who believes. The Greek verb that's being used is the present tense. That means we have a continuing action. One must continue persistently to keep on trusting and believing. See, the doctrine of eternal security, sometimes called the once saved, always saved, essentially says that one can believe briefly and then it just doesn't matter from that time forward. If I believe for a while, but now I fell away and stopped believing, I'm still saved because once saved, always saved. That's not what Paul says. He says salvation continues only so long as we continue trusting. If our trust ends, our salvation ends. I have heard all manner of theological apology for the once-saved-always-saved doctrine usually revolves, frankly, around a pretty severe twisting of God's word and instead injecting a personal opinion. And the most common rebuttal is, that once a person is saved they could never recant their salvation at any time ever for any reason because number one they've lost the freedom to make that choice once you're saved you've lost your freedom to make that choice that's argument number one argument number two if they do recant, they renounce Christ then they never actually believed in the first place they were just pretenders and why is that? Because it's a circular argument. In a circular argument it's not possible for a person who believed to stop believing. Nowhere in the scriptures is that idea supported. Nowhere. But in many places the opposite is said. Here is a very small sampling of this this ought to be really important to us. Matthew 7 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do what my Father in heaven wants. On that day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Remember what I told you about the word prophesy in the New Testament? Basically means to teach, to speak. Didn't we speak in your name? Didn't we teach in your name? Didn't we expel demons in your name? Didn't we perform many miracles in your name? I'll tell them to their faces. I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. Hebrews 6, 4-6. For when people who have once been enlightened tasted the heavenly gift... They became sharers in the Holy Spirit. They tasted the goodness of God's words and the powers of the Alam Ahabah, the the future, time and the future. And they've now fallen away. It's impossible to renew them so that they turn from their sin as long as for themselves they keep executing the son of god on the stake all over again and keep holding him up to public contempt james 5:19 through 20 my brothers if one of you wanders from the truth and someone causes him to return you should know that whoever returns a sinner from his wandering path will save him from death and cover many sins second peter 20-22, indeed if they have once escaped the pollutions of the world through knowing our Lord and Deliverer, Yeshua the Messiah and then have again become entangled and defeated by them their latter condition has become worse than their former it would have been better for them not to have ever known the way of righteousness than fully knowing to turn from the holy commandment that was delivered to them. What has happened to them accords with the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit. Yes, the pig washed itself only to go wallow in the mud. The Bible never contemplates the concept of pretenders to the gospel. Never. It never considers That all one has to do is trust momentarily and then wander away and never trust again. But now you're eternally secure. Because you ran up to the altar, you prayed, you got your fire insurance and you left. It doesn't work that way. Paul says you must continue to trust and believe. Paul ends verse 16 by saying, To the Jew especially, but equally to the Gentile. Clearly Paul says the gospel is God's power of salvation for both Jews and Gentiles. This means that this fanciful supposed two covenant theology whereby there's two routes to salvation is nonsense. The two covenant concept is Jews are saved by following the laws of Moses the Mosaic Covenant and Gentiles are saved by following the new covenant, the covenant in Christ. That concept is utterly put to shame right here. The gospel of Yeshua is both for Jew and Gentile. There's no other option. There's no plan A and plan B. But the other thing that we must see is that in the words To the Jew especially, what it's doing is reflecting a heavenly priority. Jews had, and they continue to have, a priority over Gentiles when it comes to salvation. The people of Israel are the bearers of the promise contained in the Abrahamic covenant that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Gentiles, the nations are the recipient of that blessing but it happens through Israel you see that? please also notice that Israel was also Christ's priority he took this, his message to the Jews not to Gentiles Duty would fall in time to his apostles. In a famous story where Yeshua went to the northern coastal region of Sidon and Zor, Gentile territory, a Gentile woman approached him, and here was the exchange in Matthew 15 21 24. Yeshua left that place and he went off to the region of Zor and Sidon. A woman from Canaan who was living there, came to him pleading, Sir, have pity on me, son of David. My daughter is cruelly held under the power of demons, but Yeshua didn't say a word to her. Then his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away because she's following us and keeps pestering us with her crying. And he said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Hmm. Yet after the woman begged and pleaded, Yeshua relented, and he healed the woman's daughter. Immediately Yeshua left, he went back to the Galilee. The meaning is obvious. The Jews have priority. But for Gentiles, who have faith and trust in him, Yeshua will save them too, if asked. How ironic that for 1,900 years... Christianity has switched up God's priority. And he's essentially made it to the Gentiles, especially. But not to the Jews. We're going to continue this next week. and We're going to deal with the most serious matter that is perhaps the dominant issue of our time.